What evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. (laughs) (laughs) This is the shadow. My hypnotic power, I've clouded your mind. (laughs) The shadow! Yes, the shadow. I'll be there in every empty room, as inevitable as your guilty conscience. Because her name is Justice, and her revenge for your mockery will be death. Agents of the Shadow cast report for another thrilling edition of the only podcast on the internet devoted exclusively to the ageless avenger of pulps, comics, films, and more, the Shadow Cast. Folks, it is time to tear into an excellent little tome. We have, of course, in this second season of the Shadow Cast, had the theme of the Pulp Avenger, and that means we've been working through each individual pulp story in sequential order. We already covered The Living Shadow. We covered The Eyes of the Shadow. And, of course, a month and a half ago, we covered The Shadow Laughs. And that brings us to the fourth in this initial quadrilogy, for that is indeed what this was intended to be, as we covered in the last episode. Walter B. Gibson was commissioned by Street and Smith to make a quarterly. They were just going to try it for one year, and see how those four issues went. If they sold, then they'd keep doing them. If not, oh well, we get to keep the copyright alive and nobody else can make the shadow because already there were movies and such and other pulps, in fact, that were popping up the head, the shadow or the shadow laughs or the shadow of something, or it was getting very, very, very similar to their own property that they had created on the Detective Story Magazine Hour on the radio. So they were just trying to protect a copyright Walter Gibson gets four issues in, and folks, he finally hits his sweet spot. The subject of today's episode is none other than the anti-commie massacre, the Red Menace. Yes, it is exactly what it sounds like, ladies and gentlemen. The Shadow versus his communistic equal, (laughs) the Red Envoy, the first supervillain arguably, that the Shadow ever faces, and one who is arguably the equal of the Shadow in a lot of ways. He not only is a man of disguise and a man of double identities and a man of cunning and intelligence, and also, of course, of of spy skill, he also has his own network of agents. So he matches the Shadow beat for beat in a number of ways, and that makes for a truly thrilling crime caper that you could only get from the pen of Walter B. Gibson. This came out in 1931. Many Shadow aficionados argue it is the first truly great Shadow novel. I'll say this. It is the first proper shadow formula pulp novel, if that makes sense. It's the first one that truly follows the formula that we will take and carry forward and just absolutely work and work and work until it becomes a bona fide legend in pop culture. Walter B. Gibson, if we were still kind of waiting for him to find his feet on The Living Shadow and Eyes of the Shadow and The Shadow Laughs here on The Red Menace, he finds it. He really does. And there's a number of distinguishing factors probably that contribute to that. First and foremost is the page count. It's a little shorter. It moves. 
it's better paced. It has fewer chapters than a lot of the recent issues. The core plot, as with many of the great Shadow novels, um, showcases that thing that Walter B. Gibson brought to the table, and that, of course, is continuity. He was meticulous in keeping records, and this is one of the reasons, actually, for the unsatisfactory endings of, for example, The Shadow Laughs, which I lamented in the last episode, the fact that Ezekiel Bingham just rides off into the sunset, and yeah, I mean, he's terrified or whatever, and he probably turns from a life of crime or simply curls up dead because he's really, really old, but ultimately you could you could say he gets away with it. There is no actual vengeance or retribution meted out upon Ezekiel Bingham. But the reason for that, there was actually a method to the madness. Walter Gibson was doing that because he wasn't sure if it was going to continue, and if it did, he wanted to leave some villains for the Shadow to tangle with later. He full meaning this suggests something very interesting about Walter Gibson that he was actually considering the concept of continuity and recurring villains and characters as early as the very first issues, which is really, again, you can see how circumspect this guy was. He took his job really seriously. And even though he was expecting, oh, this will just be four issues, I'll knock this out and I'll move on to the next big thing. And then this, of course, became the next big thing. He... He really did, like, he did his legwork. He took his time. He made sure it was working. And he laid the framework for, hey, if, even if it wasn't him who was writing the later stories, at least these characters would still be there for someone else to deal with. And incidentally, he didn't wind up dealing with a lot of those plot threads. Ezekiel Bingham, of course, never is dealt with. He never pops up again. He probably was intended to but he never pops up again. However, there are two recurring characters in this story that do pop back up. Actually, there's three. Vic Barquette pops up again after he was introduced in The Shadow Laughs, and we're now getting the sense that he's going to be a recurring ally for The Shadow. But Bruce Duncan, the, the proxy hero of The Eyes of the Shadow, pops up, and he pops up for a very good reason, because Burchick also pops up, who had been given license to proffer the Czarist jewels, I believe, on the black market, or not on the black market, but to sell them independently, and who should wind up being the independent buyer but the proxy hero of the Eyes of the Shadow, Bruce Duncan. And so both of these people figure in very, very prominently. In fact, Burchick is part of an exceptional opening sequence that sets the table for the pacing and the style and just the, the overall push and drive of this novel. It, it's excellent where he meets with a apparent czarist loyalist by the name of Richard Albion. And there's something just ever so slightly off about the austere Richard Albion. But Richard Albion decides that he's going to uh, set this guy up. He's, he's kind of running an underground railroad for Tsarists because the October Revolution has happened and it is rumored that communists are in America. This is, of course, historically true. There were communist agents operating in America and trying to, you know, because Tsarists were fleeing all over the world, they were trying to tie up loose ends, and, and so lots of people were assassinated or quietly done away with, and so that, you know, Burchick is trying to escape, and this isn't really much of a spoiler because it happens right in the first chapter, but he, Richard Albion does grant him, hey, I'll give you a vehicle, you can get out of here, and then in truly explosive fashion, <laughs> the chapter ends on an excellent cliffhanger. I just love how this one opens. You're instantly interested, and you haven't seen hide nor hair of the shadow, but you're giving the shadow a reason to be dropped 
in. If um, Walter Gibson actually laid out the idea of the proxy hero here, and, and interestingly enough, there really isn't a proxy hero here. You could argue for a portion of this pulp, Harry Vincent is the proxy hero. But really, honestly, the shadow is the hero. It's just that he pops in and out a little bit because we're still in the nascent stages, of course. This is the Pulp Avenger, so we're covering the very first year of shadow stories in sequential order, and the first year and change, actually, the first several pulp novels, in sequential order. And the shadow kind of is pushing Harry Vincent off to the side a little bit more as more of an active force and arguably the protagonist of this novel. But um, interesting to hear Walter Gibson explain it. He says, when I started writing The Shadow, I introduced the proxy hero. I thought that was the only way to depict the shadow. I'd put some fellow in a lot of trouble and the shadow would get him out of it, which I think is a brilliant approach. Um, it keeps the shadow, it gives him something that Batman doesn't have. It gives him mystique. It makes him an elemental force, kind of a, a figure of fate and inviolate justice and so forth. Uh, but interestingly enough, we do learn more about the shadow in this particular pulp novelette. And that is, of course, that he himself, the man behind the shadow, whose name we still as yet do not know, because we know it's not Lamont Cranston as of the last issue. Now, you and I know it's Kent Allard, but... As of now, we, the readers, are not aware that he's Kent Allard, but he has, a, he has a past in Tsarist Russia and is actually a member of a Tsarist loyalist organization, one sort of iterated from loyal nobles or, or nobles who happened to be loyal to the Tsar prior to um, him being deposed, called the Seventh Star. And this leads to a really interesting back-and-forth a conversation in the Cobalt Club, I believe, between Richard Albion, the apparent czarist loyalist, and none other than Lamont Cranston, and I will read that passage right now. As he ended the sentence, Cranston pressed his fingers tightly together. The fire opal sprang back upon a hinge. Beneath it, in the base of the ring, was a gold surface, upon which was engraved a seven-pointed star. Prince Suvor whispered Lamont Cranston. Richard Albion uttered a low exclamation. He gripped the arms of his chair, and half-rising, he cast a startled look at the man before him. Then his eyes reverted to the ring on Lamont Cranston's hand. The fire opal had dropped back into place. The red gem now glowed where the seven-pointed star had been. "'Do you recognize the name?' questioned Lamont Cranston with a slight smile. Richard Albion stared fixedly. "'Prince Zuvor.' he murmured. I have heard of Prince Zuvor. You are Prince Zuvor. The gray-haired man did not reply. His eyes met those of Lamont Cranston. For a few seconds, the two men studied each other intently. Then Albion nodded slowly. I am Prince Zuvor, he admitted. His voice was almost inaudible. Yet few men know my identity. How you discovered it is a mystery. If you possess the signet of the seventh star, that is a sign which I must acknowledge. Reaching in his pocket, Prince Zuvor brought forth a small gold coin. Pressing it between his hands, he made a twisting motion. The coin came apart. Prince Zuvor revealed one portion in the hollow of his hand. Engraved within the hollowed coin was a seven-pointed star, identical with the device that lay hidden beneath Cranston's fire opal. 
the seventh star, said Zuvor, looking intently at Cranston. It's an order of the old regime. It belongs to the years before their evolution. But you are so young, my age, replied Cranston with a slight smile, is deceiving. Like you, prince, I have memories of Russia, as it was. He placed his right hand against the bosom of his shirt. His fingers were apart. He closed his hand and extended two fingers. His quick motion denoted the number seven. The action was observed by Zuvor. The man who called himself Richard Albion responded with the same sign. Lamont Cranston uttered three words in Russian. Zuvor replied. Then, in English, Cranston said, The stars are bright tonight. The brightest stars are the planets, replied Zuvor in a low voice. And they are seven, whispered Cranston. The seven which shall rule, answered Zuvor. The two men had exchanged the passwords of the seventh star, the secret order of royalist Russia, which had numbered among its members only the most trusted nobles of the Tsarist regime. Yet despite Lamont Cranston's prompt responses, Prince Zuvor still eyed him with a remnant of doubt. Your age may be deceiving, he said. Yet you are not Russian. I was in Russia during the first months of the war, replied Cranston. As the agent of another government, I became a member of the Seventh Star. Ah, now I understand. You were one of the chosen few. Lamont Cranston nodded. And in just a few paragraphs there, we've already given Lamont Cranston, or rather, the Shadow, Kent Allard, as we'll later learn his true name is, no spoilers intended there, but I think we all kind of know what's up at this point, um, we've given him more of a backstory and more of a compelling backstory, and more importantly, one that actually dovetails into history than, God, I, I cannot, I'm struggling to think of another superhero uh, of any description, anyone who became as big as the Shadow did in comics or in multimedia, um, that has a more, like, varied and sort of complicated, in a good way, sort of origin. I I just love all of this backstory stuff, and it's really lovely that he, you know, Walter Gibson was always clever, probably his illusionist background. He shows you just a hint of it. He flashes it in front of the screen just just in front of your eyes a little bit just for a moment just to give you a sense of it and then he moves right on along with the plot he doesn't linger on it he doesn't make the entire story about the origin this is a common problem we see with modern movie writers modern video game writers modern writers tend to I don't know what it is, if it's part of current creative writing dictates or whatever, but the idea seems to be that you build an origin and then you build a character out of the origin, or or maybe you just make the character, then you make the origin, then for whatever reason they are impelled to have the story be the origin, and the origin winds up dominating the totality of the narrative. You can see this in Batman Begins, you can see it in some, uh, certainly a lot of superhero movies where we've retold the same origin. Again, you can see it in several Batman movies. The first one in Batman in 89, you certainly can see it in Batman Begins. Heck, they even revisit the origin in Batman Forever 
if I remember correctly. Uh, Batman v Superman, just again and again and again, we're back to that anvil talking about Batman's origin. Very common thing. I, you know, I'm only singling out Batman because he's probably the most popular example, but we've done it with Superman. We've done it with the X-Men, certainly, Wolverine, all these guys. We always seem to have to hit on the origin, which is understandable. You have to introduce a character, but... One of the interesting things about the Pulps was they did the reverse. They gave you the character first, and then if they had time, and if it was a hit, then they gave you the origin. There's a lesson in there. There's a very real lesson. For those of you who don't know, I've been writing stories of my own. This isn't an infomercial by any stretch of the imagination, but I tried, I deliberately tried to take that approach with the protagonist of my novel. I introduced the character, gave you just this most fleeting hint of what his origin might be, and then right on along with the plot. Didn't linger on it, didn't, you know... I, I Heck, I didn't even physically describe the character all that well. Kind of a, a callback to the Shadow. And speaking of the Shadow, this is really, like I said earlier, this is an archetypal Shadow novel. You have, essentially what we've set up here in this story is... We have the first case... Up until now, the Shadow has been up against organized crime, certain agents in Chinatown, and just dubious individuals like Ezekiel Bingham and so forth, but now we have the Shadow versus a man who could arguably be called his equal. And more than that, we have a direct parallel. He's not just his equal, but he's got an equal organization. He has his own network of agents, but instead, the, the man is called the Red Envoy. He is only known as the Red Envoy. He wears a red mask, understandably. He's a communist agent. Uh, his identity is not known. And he organizes these meetings between his followers and, and sort of meets them one at a time. He uses subversion and sort of spy tactics to communicate with them. He's using the exact same methods as the Shadow only he's using them to subvert the American government and to destroy and assassinate czarist sympathizers or leftover czarist sympathizers from the October Revolution. It's really compelling stuff and really propels this yarn forward at a really steady clip. There's also some excellent prose in here. You already heard the passage where Lamont Cranston uh, meets with Prince Zuvor or uncovers his identity for the first time, but there's, there's some really great stuff. Probably the best sequence in the whole book, unfortunately, I cannot spoil for you. It is the climax... Actually, it's more than it's really more of an epilogue. It's where he confronts the main villain, and the situation is actually resolved. And I will not say any more than that because I really, if you guys, this is a fantastic story, but it's not a very well known story. And so I know a lot of you probably have not read this yet. You need to, if you haven't. So I'm not going to spoil it for you, but the way that this resolves, it's one of the first times in the history of the Shadow where we've had a lot of villains who have gotten away with it, who have uh, moved on, who have, you know, we've even had villains who just kind of weren't addressed and were just sort of dropped and forgotten about. And there were other ones who were killed and, you know, shot, or some of them might have met some other misadventure-related end. But this is the first real conclusion to a story where I have to say it feels like the ending of a shadow pulp if that makes sense. And I won't say any more than that because I don't want to give it away, but you guys, trust me, you will really, really appreciate it, I promise. 
as you can deduce from the earlier passage that I quoted, uh, the Girasol ring once again shows up and is a, a key part of that sequence and certainly of events in general. Its connection with the Tsarist regime in Russia is explicated for the first time in the history of the Shadow. Very, very cool. It will be repeatedly referenced. There are contradictory origins for this ring that we'll talk about a little bit later. Walter Gibson sort of explained it a little bit later, and actually it was a very clever explanation. But basically he explained that there's two Eurasol rings. So the two origins are both true but they're just not sort of spelled out in the book. I, here again, Walter Gibson was always doing things like this. He would show you something, kind of explain it, maybe hint at an explanation, and then he would move right ahead. And so a lot of times you'll have plot holes that aren't really plot holes. It happens a lot in pulps because you're just moving from one plot point to the next. The Red Envoy, of course, has his network of agents, as I said earlier, but the interesting thing about this particular network of agents is that one of them is female, a French woman, by the sound of it, Arlette Deland, who is, uh, if I remember correctly, it's been a little while since I read this, but I think she's you know, kind of a blonde bombshell type. And of course, our boy Harry Vincent falls head over heels for her, and she becomes his, uh, I guess, first true love since the first novel where he was uh, going to attempt suicide over an ended relationship and financial reversals and such. So <laughs> he he does have, we, we have the first real romantic adventure or perhaps misadventure, depending on how you characterize it. But she becomes a supporting character here. And Harry Vincent is walking the line. A lot of times he became a little bit of a damsel in distress, up until Margot comes along, that is, and she becomes a much more convenient foil for that. But in this case, he's a much more active participant. He is, he actually goes to Death Island, where they have to uh, uncover the mysterious secrets of an island where these strange objects shoot out of the water and zoom around in the air, and people have seen lights on the water, and they, they want to uncover this mystery. The Shadow sends Harry Vincent there, far, far away from New York City, in order to discover this mystery and um, I won't spoil exactly what it is, but it is related to the Red Envoy and his Soviet communist plot. <laughs> and Arlette Deland, before the end, uh, winds up actually helping Harry Vincent out a bit. And they have a bit of that romantic tension. And, oh man, it's this is a great one. It has all kinds of twists and turns. You care about all the characters, really, all the major characters. Anyways, and heck, even Burbank. Our boy Burbank gets out in the field and gets to tail some people. So he actually, he's not... Now, mind you, we haven't really settled Burbank into his traditional role here as sort of the faceless guy uh, on the headsets communicating betwixt all of the different shadow agents. But still, this is really interesting. Uh, we're giving Burbank more of an active role. We're giving everyone more of an active role. And, of course, Claude Fellows makes another appearance. Probably the biggest debut here is something I referenced in one of the earlier podcasts, and that is something called the Devil's Whisper. And that is a stage magician trick. A lot of people didn't think this was true, actually, but it is a legit thing. And I've actually seen it in magic shows before. So this is this is something that is real. And it's a situation where the shadow snaps his fingers, and there's a bright flash of light and a puff of smoke, and he 
disappears or blinds someone and gets away or whatever, right? This is a common kind of conceit. Nowadays, you would use, a, I guess, a flash bomb or flash grenade or you still see this kind of thing, though. This pops up in Batman. Batman steals this whole cloth. The Joker uses it a number of times and Batman himself uses this, I believe, in Batman the Animated Series if I'm not mistaken. And basically the real world application, and it's a, I think it's actually explained in like a footnote in the original pulp version, but not in the pulp reprints, that the Devil's Whisper is basically you put one chemical, one reactive chemical on your forefinger and one reactive chemical on your thumb, and then you snap your fingers. And when those two chemicals make contact, it automatically creates a small contained explosion. This used to be a very popular stage trick at the turn of the century. It started being regulated. Um, you do still see it on occasion, but it, it started being heavily regulated after a magic shop owner in, actually, I think it was New York City, was demonstrating the trick to a customer and used too much of it and blew his own hand off. <laughs> people, people who walked into the magic store thought that a bomb had gone off, and suddenly here's this guy, he's blown his hand off, and he's both men were knocked out instantly. I mean, absolutely crazy, but this is how potent this stuff is. It is not only real, it's very real and very potent, and of course, it being an awesome stage trick, the Shadow has access to it. I won't say this is the final incarnation of the Pulp Shadow that we will see in the future. Like, this is not the two-fisted, gun-toting, twin automatics, like that version of the Shadow that we now see sort of immortalized in comics. We're not quite there yet. But the version of the Shadow who engineers a punishment, often fatal, to criminal transgressors that is appropriate thematically and morally to the crime, that version of the Shadow is birthed right here in the pages of The Red Menace. It has been collected in volume number 91 of the Sanctum Pulp reprints, which, boy, good luck finding it, because now that they are out of print, they have shot up in price all over the place. But if you have it, you're one of the lucky few. It, oh, it's also worth mentioning, it was reprinted in one of those, I think, pyramid paperbacks with the Starenko covers. So if you want to pick it up that way, it might be cheaper. I find a lot of those paperbacks a little more reasonably priced. They're like two bucks, three bucks, four bucks sometimes. And uh, that might be a, a better way to do it. But keep in mind, you will lose out on the illustrations not much of a loss, though, here, because in these early Shadow Pulps, we're still not fully illustrating the novels yet. There's one sort of frontispiece that looks actually like it is illustrated by the man who will wind up illustrating the Shadow going forward, and that is a man by the name of Tom Lavelle, my favorite sh interior Shadow illustrator. I think it's his illustration. It looks like it. Kind of a proto-Tom Lavelle style. But um, outside of that, there are no illustrations. Mind you, you won't notice because this is a quick read. This actually was the first of the Shadow novels that was cut down to like 60,000 words. You know, it, the shorter, slimmer, more sleek kind of format that the Shadow Pulps would ultimately take on. I always say for Pulps, uh, the more you can cut out, the better, I actually find. The, the less bloated they are the better it's going to be. It's going to keep things moving along, and this is probably why this particular Shadow Pulp really feels like it hauls. Um, I love, I absolutely love the prose in these early Shadow books. I especially love the descriptions of the Shadow sneaking. I've said this over and over again. It's probably the coolest stuff in these stories. Yeah, it's neat. 
um, some of the vengeance that he meets out to ne'er-do-wells and so forth. It's neat, some of the dialogue sometimes. I certainly loved Lamont Cranston talks to himself in the last issue. But um, I love this particular sequence that where the Red Envoy is onto the fact that the shadow's onto him, right? So he is attempting to flee America, and so he makes arrangements with one of his agents, Prokop. And I'll read that right now. He says, I shall go there, declared the Red Envoy. Notify your agent to expect me. I shall gain the plans. When I do, you will receive a telephone call by long distance. I will give you time to make immediate arrangements. After making such arrangements, either remain here or leave a note telling me where to call for the tickets and just what my schedule will be. I have the passports. Prokop bowed in acknowledgement. The red agent rose from his chair. As he did so, the shadow behind him seemed to grow. Prokop saw it and uttered a startled cry. The red envoy turning toward the door obscured Prokop's view. What is the matter? questioned the masked man. Nothing, said Prokop. He could see the door now. The blotch of darkness was no longer there. I must be excited. I thought I saw something behind you. The Red Envoy made no reply. He walked to the door, opened it, and was gone. Prokop watched from his window, standing at the side and peering through the crack of a shade. He did not see the Red Envoy in the street. There was a reason. The Red Envoy took off his mask and gloves as he went down the dark stairs and obscured his face in the collar of his coat. When he left the door of the apartment house, he kept close to the wall and was scarcely visible as he moved rapidly away. People who were passing him did not see him. Had they looked closely, they would have noticed his tall form as it went along beside the dark wall. But even the keenest observer would not have detected the shape which appeared a moment later, for this second figure was nothing more than a shadow which virtually grew from the darkness. It seemed to flit along the sidewalk as it took up the trail of the Red Envoy. Guys, I can't say much more without spoiling it, because some of the best passages in this book are just too spoilery for me to read. Suffice to say, you guys need to go out and pick up The Red Menace. This is my favorite of the Shadow novels that I've read so far. I mean, The Living Shadow is certainly way, way, way up there, and so is Eyes of the Shadow. But this, I I think I have to concur with public consensus on this one. This is the first truly great Shadow Pulp, and really deserves to be considered one of the greats. Unfortunately, what comes later kind of makes this pulp novel a victim of circumstance, because what follows is just so good that it overshadows this. It's not even that this book is bad or anything. You just hardly ever hear people talk about the Red Menace because what's coming later with the advent of Shiwan Khan and the Voodoo Master and the Prince of Evil and on and on and on, all these incredible pulp novels that have since become classics of American, you know, vigilante pulp fiction, they come along and unfortunately steal the thunder of stories like this and Eyes of the Shadow and a lot of these earlier books. But guys, I have to say, if Walter B. Gibson had not been called to do another Shadow novel, this would have been one hell of a way to end his run on the Shadow, which is exactly what this was going to be if the Shadow Pulps were not a success. Fortunately for us, they were slightly successful, wouldn't you say? Oh, well, there's only 330 of them, uh, spanning 
what two decades two entire decades just about <laughs> i'd say it was mild it was a mild success folks just you know slightly temper it a little bit the red menace guys i love this one i loved it even more this time and i gotta say you guys if you want a real shadow story where the shadow is up against a true equal and you want a little bit of a current events kind of thing. This is actually, before I move on, I should probably talk about this. Um, this is, people kind of say one of two things about this. Either it's dated because of the the inclusion of communism, totally off the mark in my opinion, or it is ahead of its time because of communism, which is one of the things that I've said because the October Revolution, of course, yes, it was in 1917, but the Cold War was still a few years away. But therein lies the rub, and I probably should have mitigated my remarks with this. The October Revolution only occurred 14 years before the publication of this particular story. And in fact, in the sort of midpoint article, you know, in the in the pulp reprints, a lot of times Will Murray or Anthony Tolan or, or sometimes a guest columnist will tell you a little something about the history of the story. And whoever wrote it had made a remark that this story is out of character for the Shadow because he's fighting prohibition era gangsters most of the time and i would have to strongly disagree with that what this is instead is something that walter gibson was experimenting with for the next several novels and in fact the next one's probably an even bigger extrapolation on this idea this idea of ripping something from the headlines and putting it in a shadow pulp this is after the october revolution there are already reports that communist agents and infiltrators are in America. In fact, they engineered a dock strike in Seattle, which is why Seattle dock unions to this day have strong socialist ties. Um, we all know what would happen in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s with Black Friday and those riots and so forth. And, um, and it, heck, when the Berlin Wall fell and we wound perestroika occurred, we heard via the Venona papers after that that the Communist Party USA was being funded by the USSR to the tune of like $4 million every single year, right? So even into the 80s, <laughs> that was happening. So this is an example of pulling something from the headlines, and this will, of course, be extrapolated to extreme effect in the next pulp novel, Gangdom's Doom, which I'm really, really looking forward to covering. That's another classic novel, just back-to-back -back classics here. But folks, The Red Menace. Really, really excited for you guys to read it. Definitely let me know what you think of it in the comments section. This is one that I would love to see a proper comic adaptation of, but good luck finding a company <laughs> that are actually willing to defame socialists in 2021. Speaking of cowardly companies that all too often pit the shadow against Nazis, that brings us to Dynamite Entertainment with their publication of The Shadow Midnight in Moscow. Now, at first glance, this might seem like sort of a one-off, Hey, you know, Howard Chaikin did this incredible job on The Shadow, Blood, and Judgment. And I've recommended that previously in videos on my other channel. And we'll be certainly doing a proper detailed breakdown of Blood and Judgment because it's one of the all-time classic Shadow comics and certainly very, very controversial even to this day. But Howard Chaikin really, he elevated his profile. He was already very well known at that time, but he did a great job on The Shadow, Blood, and Judgment. And this is actually kind of... It, it seems like a, a one-off, like they just wanted the name recognition of Howard Chaikin doing a shadow story again. But in actuality, what this kind of functions as is, yeah, it's that a little bit, but at the same time, it's also a sequel to, or prequel actually, 
to the shadow, blood, and judgment. Really, that's kind of what this is at the end of the day, which is odd because Dynamite Entertainment did not publish the shadow, blood, and judgment. I think they wound up republishing it later, but basically <laughs> this is a prequel made it a different company and therefore with a different continuity uh, to, <laughs> to this story, which is published by Dynamite, not DC, Years later, very strange, convoluted, but um, this is also similarly a bit controversial and not for the best reasons. The Shadow, Blood, and Judgment I've always likened to being a little bit of a Dark Knight Returns for the Shadow. It is, it's very Frank Miller, kind of has that edgy vibe to it, kind of is sending up 1980s pop culture at the same time that it's discussing. It's sort of a fish-out-of-water thing with the shadow coming back after a long absence. You know, we'll talk about that in the detailed breakdown, but this is more of a prequel. This is sort of explaining why the shadow went missing. Basically the premise, I have to talk about the premise of blood and judgment in the shadow blood and judgment, which I do recommend that you read. He comes back after a long disappearance. He just one day lets all of his agents know, Hey, he's out of the business. He's gone. Doesn't say where he's going, leaves no forwarding address. That's it, including Margot, which is sort of the heart of that story and this one to a degree. Much more this story, actually. And so the idea here is we're essentially showing the origin of why the Shadow had to or wanted to go into hiding. And they don't make you wait very long. They, they really don't. But first, you have great opening action scenes and so forth. Which is strange, because one of the most frequent criticisms of this book, and I don't think it's unwarranted for sure, is that it's very, very agonizingly slow. It is such as, there, I mean, three issues, I forget how many issues it is in general, because I have the graphic novel, but, I mean, I think three issues went by without any major action outside of the intro to the first issue. This is a classic case. I think we this has to definitively be stated for the record. This is a classic case of graphic novel syndrome. We are writing for this to be collected in graphic novel trade paperback format. And thusly, each individual issue doesn't necessarily work as well as a fully encapsulatory story of its own. We see this with a lot of comics nowadays and... You can tell Howard Chaikin was writing this for a graphic novel and wasn't necessarily entirely sure where he was going. I have a feeling, just, just kind of my gut feeling reading some of this, it meanders a little bit. But he is setting things up. Like, he clearly has a game plan. He knows generally where a lot of the characters are going and so forth. But, you know, at the end of the day, there are some weird detours and such that don't really pay off down the road. Uh, one thing does that does pay off, though, is the opening action sequence, uh, which is almost as good for its dialogue as it is for its action, where Benedict Stark, yes, folks, the Prince of Evil, the Prince of Evil makes an appearance. And we're late in the Shadow's career now. I think we're late 40s, early 50s. And the Shadow pops up. He's He's literally, the Prince of Evil is going to try and rob the Federal Reserve, Fort Knox. So the shadow appears on this pile of gold bars. <laughs> and his first words are, Really now, Stark, robbing the Federal Reserve. How much is too much? And then there's this great interchange where Benedict Stark says, I'd heard you were dead. And the shadow says, 
I gather by heard, you mean prayed. <laughs> just so much fun. You know, Howard Chaykin is just having a blast with this. And you can tell there's lots of tough guys with gats, you know, lobbing lots of lead back and forth. Uh, and then the shadow, uh, well, actually, I should say Jericho Druk uh, knocks a big wall of gold down on him. I don't, I don't know why exactly it had to be Jericho. Uh, does he work at the Federal Reserve now or something? I don't know. But cool, cool comic so far. But then we hit the lull. And what we're setting up is a plot, kind of a James Bondian plot, honestly. Howard Chaykin being a big James Bond fan, always being attracted to kind of super spy <laughs> type stuff. I should also say, before we move too far on, Howard Chaykin very much an acquired taste for a lot of people artistically. I am a fan of Shaken. I don't think he's done any favors here by the coloring job. Howard Shaken, if you're not a fan of Howard Shaken, I would strongly recommend you go look at some of his older stuff. And I don't even necessarily mean 80s. I mean, like, maybe the graphic novel adaptation he did of Alfred Bester's The Star's My Destination. Cool shadow connection on that one, by the way. Alfred Bester wrote a lot of shadow scripts in the early to mid 40s he wrote a lot of those sci-fi oriented ones and i actually recorded a radio recreation of one of them called the immortal murderer an episode that has since been lost to time unfortunately was not preserved that was a john archer episode but howard chaykin one of his earliest gigs was painting this awesome it looks very bill sinkevich-esque and uh, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And it is a real classic graphic novel. And when I say graphic novel, I mean like, you ever remember when you heard the term graphic novel for the first time and you were like, what is that? Is it like, like one of two things goes through your mind. Oh, graphic, what does that mean? Like lots of blood and nudity or like, what does that mean? Or, or is it graphic novel? Like, do you concentrate on the novel part? Is it literally going to have like written words on the page and then maybe there's some graphics in the margins or whatever. This is literally what the graphic novel adaptation of The Stars My Destination is. It is graphic storytelling. It does, but the comic panels are laid out, if I remember correctly, like vertically. And the literal word-for-word -word text from the book is in the margins alongside the panels. It's really interesting, and more importantly, it's beautiful. I think it's some, it is, hands down, Howard Chaykin's best work. Like, he threw his back into it. It really looks incredible. And it isn't quite as idiosyncratic, it must be said, as his later work. His anatomy is a little... It just... It's less Chaykin, if that makes sense. All of his guys in his comics, he gets criticized. They all kind of look like James Bond... And um, all the women kind of have the same proportions, if you know what I mean. And there's kind of a chunkiness to his art, I guess, is the predominant descriptor. Not so with The Star's My Destination. Highly, highly recommend it. But ever since I read that, I was a big Chaykin fan. And maybe because I was eased more into his later work, which is a little bit more Chaykin, for lack of a better term. More blocky looking, more, you know... He, he has a very 2D quality to his art. His, he does understand foreshortening and perspective, and he's certainly an accomplished artist. I'm not saying that, but he does... One of the common criticisms is chunky and flat, right? Very, very chunky, very flat. And I wouldn't say those criticisms are always completely unwarranted. Not so with Stars My Destination. But this... 
you know, he's in full-on shaken mode. This was published, I believe, in 2014, so this is a much more recent book. And, of course, it's computer-colored. The Stars My Destination was watercolored, I think. It's painted. It looks like it's painted. So it's a traditional medium, and I think that suits his artwork better. There is a glossiness here that doesn't look that great. Howard Chaikin's work looks really good in black and white or with traditional media coloring, like paint or colored pencil or, you know, something like that. That really lends itself to Chaikin's unique style. This doesn't. The computer coloring really doesn't do him any favors. And then he does this thing, um, whoever the colorist is, heck, it could be Chaikin himself, where he'll overlay a literal pattern on top of something. So let's say there's a woman who needs a plaid pattern on her dress. The computer colorist will literally put a flat pattern of plaid on top of her. And I think the intended effect is some kind of pseudo-Sterenko. Oh, it's we're laying the plaid and it's just going to be flat while the character is multidimensional and this is going to make the image pop. No, it does the reverse. It looks flat and dead and it looks ugly and amateurish. It doesn't look good at all. It's not pop art. You're not Andy Warhol. And you should, you should by the way, you should fall to your knees and thank your upright walking god that you're not Andy Warhol because he's a hack. But yeah, computer coloring, just not a fan of it at all. The plot is ginger in getting going, it must be said. I guess if I have one big gripe about Midnight in Moscow, it's that there's very little Midnight or Moscow in Midnight in Moscow. It's, you spend most of the time in America or Britain. Honestly, most of it is spent in Great Britain or, you know, in other places in Europe. And uh, you honestly don't even get to Moscow or even have hints of Moscow until the final two issues. We end the first issue with the revelation that the Shadow wants to retire. And really, to be perfectly honest, apart from the detour of the plot, which kind of could be seen as a detour, depending on how you want to look at it, when we end the, you know, the final panels of the final issue of this miniseries, we're at the exact same place we were at the end of the first issue. That's a problem from a writing standpoint. You know, there's no, you're not working up to the big reveal. You're just... At the end of the first issue, it's clear the Shadow's going to retire. At the end of the last issue, he retires. And this is supposed to be the big cherry on top. It just doesn't It doesn't work. You have to work up to that. You have to either have him suffer a series of setbacks or the task of the... Whatever is required of him in the plot, which it is intriguing in its own way. We are now actually, like I said, late... I think it's early 50s, actually. We're early 50s, the dawn of the Cold War... We're teetering, of course, toward nuclear Armageddon by itself without any people in black capes running around shooting automatics in foreign countries. We're already dangerously and precariously close to nuclear Armageddon. We all know about the doomsday clock and so forth. Benedict Stark, the Prince of Evil, uh, incidentally winds up only being a cameo because he was used to get close to the world's nuclear arsenal. There's a convoluted kind of explanation of what's going on. Like I said, it's very, very Bond. You half expect Blofeld to come out from behind some wall somewhere stroking a white Persian cat (laughs) at a certain point. But the villains are slightly unconventional. You have St. John, and then you have this Southern Belle 
who turns out to be a communist. She's looking to wipe out the U.S., and because of what she's going to do, it's, of course, going to blow back on Russia, and they're afraid that Russia, responding to the situation, Stalin's just going to lob all of his nukes before they can hit him, and it's going to be World Armageddon, nuclear winter, and so all that 50s post-nuclear detonation paranoia, right? It's all great stuff in its own way. I don't know that Howard Chaikin necessarily is the guy to write all of it. He does have some interesting lines of dialogue here and there. I love when he really embraces the period and doesn't get too contemporary with it, which is, for the most part, I think he does pretty well. I One of the big things I always cringe at, and I've talked about it before, is the characters who seem like, hey, look, it's a 2021 character in a story set in, say, 1821, right? And they're using contemporary mores to sort of filter the events of the past as if as if we have everything figured out, <laughs> as if we can look at the state of the world and say, yeah, we've figured out most things much, much better than previous generations. There were no mechanisms of society that were working better in 1891 uh, than they currently are. <laughs> now, of course, the Shadow being a master of all other languages, including Russia, in fact... In keeping with the theme of today's episode, the first time it is learned that the Shadow can speak Russian is when? In the pulp issue of The Red Menace, right? And sure enough, here in Midnight in Moscow, we establish that the Shadow can indeed speak Russian. He carries on conversations <laughs> with several Russians, including uh, General Putovkin, who's involved in the conspiracy, and it's great. He pops up, and the shadow says, Step back, comrade General Pudovkin, or die where you stand. And it's all in this, the way he writes it is in this faux Cyrillic, where the E's are like backwards, and the N's are backwards, and it's supposed to sort of simulate Russian, but not really. <laughs> but it's but it's great, because you get some old pulpy dialogue that's really insensitive and fantastic and macho. The sort of faux Cyrillic font there really makes it difficult to read. I mean, I would say it takes twice as long to read pages that have that writing on it, and I think Howard Chaikin is probably in a corner somewhere laughing his balls off, just knowing it's so hard to read these. But, yeah, The Shadow Midnight in Moscow it takes a little while to come together. I would say by the end of the second to last issue, it starts out strong, really hits a sluggish period, then in the second to last issue on the second to last page, it really picks up with the plot. And then the last issue is a delight. It's a it's a great, great comic. Unfortunately, it just it lags. It's look, if you have the patience and it is co collected in graphic novel form, not necessarily in single issues like in single issues. This is just direct like it's unreadable. It's clearly written for a graphic novel format and honestly not even optimized for that. But if you could hang with it, and you have the patience, and you just want to read a fun The Shadow as James Bond spy story that takes place on the other side of enemy lines in the middle of the Cold War with this sort of cloud of nuclear winter hovering above the proceedings, man, you can do a lot worse than The Shadow Midnight in Moscow. And of course, if you are one of the many, many devoted Howard Chaikin fans... I know there are lots of you, then I'm sure you'll want to pick up The Shadow Midnight in Moscow. You know, if I were to rate it, it'd be like a three out of five, kind of middle of the road, mainly because it's so good and so boring at the same time. And so those two things kind of cancel each other out and it becomes sort of a middling effort, guys. You know, that, that's unfortunately, that's all I can say. Folks, that 
does it for this edition of the Shadowcast. I'm sorry it took me almost a, an additional month to get this particular entry out, but I've been very, very busy, in case you haven't seen, and uh, I have read all of the pulps that we need to review going forward, so it won't take too long, just as this one didn't once I actually got the time to sit down and record it. Fellow agents, until next time. As you so evil, so shall you reap evil. Crime does not pay. A shadow knows. <laughs>